The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to The Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Fortune 500 leadership consultant, Keith Eigel, Ph.D., uh, author of The Map, Your Path to Effectiveness in Leadership, Life, and Legacy. Great leadership, according to him, isn't about winning, it's not about pleasing people, and it's certainly not about titles. Great leadership is about making the contribution only you can make for your family and friends, your community or organization, your country or the world. Dr. E. Eigel discusses this year's presidential election and how the polls show that both candidates have the highest unfavorable ratings in polling history, leaving many voters concerned about their leadership capabilities. His work is based on years of research and is a leading leadership consultant to four Fortune hype to Fortune 500 companies. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Keith. Thanks for having me, Catherine. I'm looking forward to it. Okay. Well, we're not going to start out by talking about the presidential election. We are going to start out talking about your book and the map and how you know your particular uh, assessment of leadership qualities, what we need to do to become good leaders. And there is a process. And obviously, um, you've been a, a consultant to CEOs in Fortune 500 companies. You've done a lot of research in this area. You're an organizational psychologist? I'm an organizational psychologist, which for the layman's term on that is basically business psychology, corporate psychology. Okay. So, so your expert, yeah, go ahead. We, so we've been working for the last 20 years or so really um, with both executive leadership teams and largely next generation leaders, so 30 to mid-40-somethings, running them through programs that really increase their development because as adults, we keep growing in two different ways. One way we call lateral development, and that is really acquiring more knowledge, skills, and abilities that seem relevant to whatever world we're trying to have influence in. So for many of our clients, that's, that's the business world. And so managing conflict and understanding strategy and all these kinds of things. But for a parent who is leading in the home, there are knowledge, skills, and abilities that can really facilitate better parenting skills, better parenting leadership. But the other way that we wind up growing in adulthood is that our, the way we understand the things we know, we keep maturing in a way that many of us would even call leadership maturity, leadership maturity or developmental maturity. And the thing about this developmental maturity is it's measurable, it's knowable. Um, there are four primary stages in adulthood. But the most important thing in terms of the areas that we want to have influence is there is no better predictor 
of a leader's influence, of their effectiveness, then it's not what they know. It's where they are on this developmental spectrum. All right, so let's talk about the developmental spectrum, but I'm also, because I want to make it clear, we're talking about leadership, not just leadership in in about Fortune 500 companies, as you say. Leadership, you're talking good parenting, good parents, leaders in the community, um, all the ones I kind of mentioned at the beginning of the the interview, right? Is that what we're talking about, just leadership? Yeah. Exactly, and and what we see is that we really define leadership as having influence in a direction on purpose, having influence in a direction on purpose, and um, and so if you think of, uh, I know that you've got children in your twenties. I similarly, I have four children, and I want to have influence with those now young adult children in a direction on purpose. I'm no longer in the role of telling them what to do, but I want to have leadership influence with them. Those same skill sets that allow that us to do that with our family, even with aging parents, with siblings, um, it, th- those, that same skill set has direct application to how effective we are in other leadership roles, organizational, or even when we get to it in the interview, even the presidential race. Why is it so important? Why is it so important? I mean, I mean, obviously, I mean, it, it seems like it, it's obvious that yes, we should be good leaders for, as you say, in any realm of our, I guess, and wherever we have, uh, I guess, influence over other people. Uh, teachers can be good leaders. I mean, you could take it, I guess, into every realm, right, or institution. Precisely. But why is it so critical? Why do we need to do that? And I guess the second question is: Are we sort of have we become not such good leaders, or are we becoming better leaders? Um, presumably by reading your book, we will become better leaders. But, um, yeah, why is it so critical that we are good leaders in our communities and families and politics or, or, or wherever or where we work? Well, part, I mean, part of it has to do that we're all on this developmental journey, and we're all on it in the same way, even though we bring so many unique and complicated characteristics to each of our own journeys, which is what makes them unique. But the way that we grow, the way that we understand the world, um, really starts in childhood. But I won't. The, the, the people can go back and read Piaget if they want to understand childhood development. But when we start talking about adults, there are four primary stages of growth in adulthood. The lowest level of adult growth is actually an arrested development, as people who stop growing with sort of a middle school mentality. And so in middle school, it's a very kind of black and white, concrete, me-first understanding of the world. And, it's, uh, and, and I'm motivated to get what I want as a middle schooler. It's what makes middle schoolers difficult. Okay. So when what are people, the consequences if that's the, well, that's the, we're starting at number, you know, the worst, or arrested development, as you say? Yeah, what we call the, it level two, right? Okay. What are the but consequences the, the, of, of staying in that at level two for us well, as all individuals? Well, all leaders in our – it's a very, very destructive leadership style. It's a very either-or, me first, my agenda, I need to win at all costs, I'm going to use you to achieve my goals kind of leadership style. And most of us have met, uh, or, or, and hopefully not, but some of us have worked for a leader like that in the past where it was really all about them. And so – 
really in those kinds of lowest level of development situations, people who get into leadership roles, maybe because they have a special skill or, or an intelligence level where they got promoted up in some way, but they're really not good at leading. The consequence is it's a very destructive leadership style. It, it, it really leads to disharmony. Um, and it, and it is a, it's a middle school mentality in an adult body. It's a lot, a lot of name-calling, a lot of, I mean, this is where we're, we may get into the presidential piece earlier than we meant to, but, the, um, but what happens is that as we keep growing through our teenage years and into our 20s, as we move toward what we call level three, there, you know, we are really defined by and wanting to please people. We're wanting, we're, we're understanding ourselves and our situations through the input of others, and those others are outside sources. And so we really don't own it yet. And many people, many of the millennials right now, and I am so bullish on millennials, I, I think they're, they're going to be a generation that brings so much in terms of leadership to the world. But right now, their mental capacity, because of their exposure to so many things, their mental capacity really exceeds their leadership capacity. And sometimes mental capacity is mistaken for leadership capacity because they don't really own the, the, their understanding of it even as they know it. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, I was going to say, give us an example. Just give us some really specific examples of, of the other people that you've worked with that kind of reflect what you're talking about right now. Well, w- one great example is, um, is, is having conflict with a colleague. Really just take, pull the rug out from under your, you know, your, your foundation, um, for many people, when they are in conflict with a boss, an employee, or a colleague, their, their world is really apart until that conflict, conflict is fixed uh, or, or things are back right with the person. And so a ton of their energy is wasted worrying about what other people are thinking about them. And so many people who are in their 20s and even into their 30s and many people in their 40s are still caught in this kind of level three sort of understanding where I am so worried about what others are thinking about me or looking to others for what I should do that I'm really not leading. I'm paying attention to these influences. I would say that most people, at least in my experience, you know, whether it's personally or even in my profession, really get stuck at this level three, wanting to please other people. I mean, and, and, and you'll see people who in their, maybe they don't get to be in their maybe 50s or even 60s. Well, now I really don't, you hear them say, I don't really care now what people think. I'm not so concerned about it. I just go with what I know is right or the, the right thing to do or what my intuitions. But it takes, it seems to me, at least in our culture, level three is a big area of getting stuck and as you say you're not a leader and and you then the energy that's wasted and and the skills that are wasted and the, so i i think that's I, I don't know if that's your experience or not it's so true Catherine. i mean that's that is the place that most people get hung up a colleague of ours at harvard named bob keegan wrote a book called in over our heads the mental demands of modern life and it really is about being stuck at level three he predicts that as much as 20% of organizational energy, so in a, in, an, in a functioning organization, profit, nonprofit, it doesn't matter, 
20% of time is actually spent worrying about what other people are thinking about me. And so being caught up in that, and there is a lot of arrested development. Now, this is a normal place. It's a normal and healthy place to be in our early 20s, really all the way through our 20s. And, and we recognize that in younger people that we know and, and see and work with that, oh, yeah, I c- we kind of remember that I was kind of like that then, too. And so it's understandable. But when someone is entering their 40s or 50s, and is still kind of stuck in this, you know, determining their well-being by their circumstances and blaming others when things don't go well. I have heard so many stories over the years of people who dread Thanksgiving and Christmas and holiday get-togethers with their family because one of their parents puts so much pressure on the rest of the family for everybody to be the right way so that and really, it's so that parent is okay. And so in that way, they are, they are being determined from the outside in. And this is also not an effective way to lead. When we move toward level four, we cross this transition where we begin to take ownership of who we are. We can separate ourselves from a conflict and recognize that we can be in conflict with someone but still have a relationship with them. I had one CEO said, look, all of us likes to get along with one another, but we can have conflict and still go out that evening and have dinner together. I think that's the best way I can describe it. That was his quote. And it's recognizing that I can separate myself from this, even as I'm still paying attention to the conflict. And it is when we have this more inside-out perspective on who we are that our influence changes in in terms of leading others. People are more willing to follow us when we are grounded in our values and, and, and knowing who we are. And that applies in the boardroom, as you say, and also in families. I mean, you've given both examples, I think. Um, it's, is it really difficult to get to level four? I mean, what is the process? How do we need to do that? Such a great question. And, and so what drives development, even from early in childhood, but I won't get into that, but all the way through our lives in terms of this, what we're calling vertical development, this developmental maturity, what drives growth is actually bumping up against challenging circumstances, challenging situations, challenging relationships, challenging ideologies, that our current way of understanding the world can't make perfect sense of. And so it is actually persevering through difficulty that leads to this maturity. And that's, we recognize that experience is important and that challenging experiences are important. But the thing is, is when we get into adulthood, Catherine, we have more and more ability to actually fix our challenging circumstances before they do their work. And so we can make a conflict go away or sweep it under the rug, or once we become of age, we can cover it up with beer or wine or TV or, you know, just let's ignore it. Let's not pay attention to it. And it loses its developmental impact. And so in the work that we do with clients, I mean, we've got six-month programs that we run hundreds of people through a year, um, mostly next-generation leaders. It's actually through many different 
techniques that we use, but we're actually getting people to figure out what's most difficult in their world and to lean into that in a new way that will lead to growth. Okay. So this is in your company, right? This, this is, is what... in the co- a company that we have called the Leaders Lyceum, where we, okay. you know, a lot of the Fortune 500s that we work with, and a lot of small entrepreneurial businesses and. 30% of our business is actually higher education leadership. So college presidents, deans, university heads are coming through to, to, be, to be pushed to grow in ways that are going to make the biggest impact on their leadership because usually the knowledge, skills, and abilities in order to perform in whatever their industry is already there. I mean, we all know really smart people who are not great leaders, and, well, the two are not one and the same, and as you said, I mean, you, you know, from a social work perspective, um, your emotional IQ is different than your intellectual IQ, which is kind of what we're talking about, I think. Um, what about, though, what do you find, like, you talk about we're fearful, we kind of, we, we can sweep our challenges under the rug, drugs, yeah. alcohol, sex, whatever it is. What are the biggest fears, maybe in, in the different arenas? Well, you know, a CEO is going to have different fears than, than parents or educators or, you know, in the different areas. Um, certain, or even a yeah. highly developed grandparent, to, be, to tell you the truth. They, 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 have, they, they have things that are holding them in place. It's just a, if they've been the kind of people that have kept growing, it's a very different kind of thing that holds them in place. But Let's the so at level three, people who are stuck in between level three and level four, which hits so much of the working population, and really, again, that's our, that's our wheelhouse in terms of what we do for a living, is working with next generation 30 and 40-somethings. But um, the, the, thing that holds them in, in, uh, the thing that holds them in place is this, I guess, unwillingness to let other people down and, and being worried about what it would be like um, to, to not meet someone else's expectations. And so they, so they find themselves caught in this way of, of, of not... Of, they find themselves caught in a way where they are more concerned about making sure that things stay smooth and even from the outside in, that they don't take the risk of letting go of this thing that's holding them in place in order to gain the next bigger, better, more inside-out way of understanding. Where does that come from? I mean, it obviously comes from the way you're talking about child, you're talking, we're talking about middle school, but you have to even go further back than that, I guess. Is it our culture? Is it something that's changed? Or is it getting worse in terms of our ability to, you know, kind of meet these challenges and go ahead and, 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 and grow? I mean, you know, are we getting worse at it? Or, and where does it come from? Uh, in a glass half full kind of way, it sure is easy to look at our Congress and see a group that seems defined from the outside in more than the inside out, more defined by the party ideology than knowing who they really are, mm-hmm. and blaming the other side. Um, blame is a very common characteristic of being caught at level three. It's never my fault. If, I, if, if I'm defined, if, I'm, if I understand myself in the world from the outside in, when things go wrong, it can't be my fault. And there are you know, there's a lot of things in our, we've talked about this when we, 
sit around um, and sort of, you know, think through the implications of this, there is a, seems to me to be more of a blame-oriented element to our culture right now, more than taking personal responsibility for who I'm going to be in the middle of things that aren't going well for me. And so, yeah, I think there are some cultural implications that are actually holding us back as, an, as a country, so, well, I, so, societally. Yeah. I think Congress, that's a great example. I mean, it, it's a sad example, but it's, it, I think that really is a good example of get, being stuck and the, and the horrific implications that that has for us as individuals, as, as our, for our country, not being able to make decisions, not being able to be leaders and are elected as leaders <laughs> and uh, and then not being able to follow through. I mean, so that that is a good example. It's, um, why, it's why the Joe Liebermans of the world stand out so uniquely as someone who has decided what they're about independent of the party dogma. Is he right? the only they're one? Not so, not, they're not so defined by what side of the aisle are they on. I'm from Georgia. Zell Miller was another great example of this. Well, you know, you see these, and I'm putting it, leaders on television, and you really can get a sense sometimes that, you know, this person doesn't seem to be really speaking from the heart or what he really believes in. I mean, you can, you can by body language, by the way he or she is talking, they seem to, you know, they're just talking the party line or whatever that is, but you really feel that, hey, they're not really talking you know they're not talking as i say from the heart or from how they assess the problem but it's just all about uh you know it's all about the the party line and and that's really destructive for us right and it's at the and it's at the basis of when we go back and look at this is this has been a while ago now but when we look at the disaster that happened with enron we had a level 2 leader at the head of that organization that um, at the head of that consulting engagement, that was really out for themselves. That was a, it was a very me first. How am I going to win personally? Not how is Enron going to win, but how how am I going to win in this? The average age of the consultant on that project was 26 years of age, so largely level three, just by where they are in their life. Um, and and what and what happened is that the people who had a sense that, hey, this isn't right, were more concerned about what their boss was going to think of them than really taking ownership of the right thing to do. And the person who blew the whistle, by the way, on that was a 45-year-old inside-out woman who said that I can't look at myself in the mirror. I, this is not who I am. And, and her leadership in this, it was devastating for many people, but, but it was, but, but the, the, it was a more effective response to what she was seeing. Well, how do you step back? And I know I've, I've sat on a few search committees for people, whether it's in education you know, look, uh, or in other areas. Um, how do you kind of assess whether, you know, somebody that you are going to hire, say, to be a leader in whatever, you know, whatever institution it is, what do you look for? And I say that because, you know, as having had the experience and being in that position to know whether somebody is going to be a good leader, if you have, a, you know, not a, a, you have a certain amount of information... 
but not necessarily, uh, you know, as much as maybe you think you or feel that you need. So what do you do? How do you do that? How do you assess them? How do you assess well, them before we, you hire we them? Actually, we actually have a technique for <clears throat> making this assessment. It's a fairly expensive um, way to go about interviewing somebody. But what? let me contrast this to what's so easy to assess. What's easy to assess are knowledge, skills, and abilities. I mean, we've got we can we can test people to see if they clear that hurdle. Do they know enough to come in? Is there do they have the experiences that they've had in their lives? Does it give them enough knowledge, skill, and ability to come in and perform the role? But when we're hiring someone from the outside in, the thing that makes that so difficult is there are some people who one of the skills that they have is interviewing. You know, they're really good. They really interview well. But what we need to do is get past what they know and try and understand how do they know what they know. And so by, by asking them what's most important about that, how did you come to that decision, um, we can start to get insight into whether or not they really own this understanding that they have or whether they're parroting something. P-A-R-R-O-T, parroting something from the outside in. And, um, and there are a number of level two people, even, who have learned the right thing to say in order to win. It's interesting. I also sit on a lot of selection committee kind of, you know, stuff or performance and talent review kinds of meetings and organizations and it's interesting to hear leaders in the organization, um, they use the word gravitas. And what they mean by that is this person is grounded in who they are. There's a gravity to them. And that is a more inside out, more level four, more I know who I am kind of understanding of the world. And those people are viewed intuitively by people who are in the middle of these talent review kinds of things as being more effective than people who seem a little bit more wishy-washy, a little bit more, a little bit too concerned about what others think about them, or a little bit too adhering to company policy or the culture of the organization, and not thinking on their own. We only have three minutes left, and I just want to at least kind of wrap it up. Uh, Keith was kind of like applying this to leadership quality. You get three minutes to do this, uh, and our presidential candidates. Yeah. <laughs> so it's interesting. All of these unfavorable ratings that we're seeing, and and, and really, people fe- feeling very strongly about the their, their dislike for a candidate. I think is not based so much in the knowledge, skills, and abilities that either of these candidates bring to the table. I think there is an intuitive awareness that there is something missing from a developmental maturity standpoint. There's too much name-calling. There's too much oversimplified categorization of the issues. There is too much adherence to either one ideology or the other. And I think people are seeing, and, and uh, Catherine, I'm mid-50s, so I've been around and witnessed a, a few presidential elections I've never seen anything like this in my life. Where, and, and I think, I, I think if we could end this on a positive note, I think what both of these leaders need to do 
is show us that they're bigger than name-calling, that they're, that they're bigger than oversimplified answers to incredibly complex problems. And they need to show us that what they have the capacity to do is understand the issues and evaluate them against a higher-order set of values that is based in what binds us together as a country and not separates us. So I haven't been able to do a developmental interview or seen enough first-person writings to accurately say this is where Donald Trump is or this is where Hillary Clinton is. But I think, the, I, I think you know, the first half of the book, uh, the map that you introduced at the beginning of the show, by the way, folks can go to themapthebook.com if they want to learn more. The first half of this book actually lays out this developmental journey. It's understanding the roadmap for growth. And, and folks can make their own assessment of where they think each of these leaders are, depending on ideologically, which way did they lean. So I don't know if I got in under the three minutes. I think but. you did. You did a great job. And, 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 and uh, listeners need to, I, well, I'll mention the book again because I think it is an important book, The Map, Your Path to Effectiveness in Leadership, Life, and Legacy. And that's Keith Eigel, Ph.D. Um, thanks so much for being on the show this morning. We, I learned Total a lot. It's a pleasure, Catherine. Yeah, really it was great it. having you. Uh, we Thank are you. going to take a short break. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Don't go away. We'll be back in a minute. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts. We'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Uh, Joining me this morning is critical care nurse Katie Kleber, 
author of Admit One, What You Must Know When Going to the Hospital, but no one actually tells you. Uh, According to Katie, a report from a patient safety group found that communication breakdowns in hospitals in the United States led to more than 1,700 patient deaths over five years. In the trauma of being admitted to a hospital, patients and their family members can easily become confused by the bombardment of information and instructions from a sea of strangers. They lose track of what they need to know and what they need to let their health team know. So critical care nurse, RN, Katie Kleber, gives us an insider's guide, or she's going to give us an insider's guide this morning, to the culture of a hospital sharing the important questions a patient needs to ask and how to remember to ask them. Uh, you may have seen Katie on CNN, the Dr. Oz Show, and the Today Show. Welcome. Nice to have you on this morning. Thank you so much for having me. Well, you know, as we just mentioned right before we got on the show, Katie, I mean, I've been a, I'm a social worker and worked in uh, hospitals uh, for most of my, whatever the clinical work I ever did. So I think your book is, is right on target. It's really important. And, uh, I mean, you point out, let's talk about, I mean, you say, I mean, if 1,700 people die a year in hospitals in the United States and it's related to communication breakdown, then we have a real problem, right? This is... Hey, oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's a big deal. And, you, and, and if that many people have, had, have passed away from that issue, just think of how many people haven't, but maybe they had a very serious event that maybe altered their life but didn't end their life. You know, like, I, I feel like there, that, that doesn't really include everybody that has um, suffered from a communication breakdown in the hospital. All right, so what do we do? How do we start? I know in the book you talk about, well, the way one can get into a hospital, there are several, you know, whether it's the emergency room or you do have a condition that you know about and you're going to have surgery or you may want to discuss, you know, first of all, how we get there uh, because I think that makes a difference right from the beginning in terms of how we're treated and how we respond to the hospital treatment. Absolutely. So there's, you know, the most common way is really like I've had this acute, this sudden emergency. I go to the emergency room. I get evaluated. The physician says, hey, I think you need to stay in the hospital. Maybe you need a procedure done. Maybe we need to watch you. Maybe we need to give you meds. So we send you up to a nursing nursing unit, and that's being admitted to the hospital through the emergency department. Um, Sometimes, though, you may have a planned surgery, so you're having, you know, a heart surgery that you knew about ahead of time. You're having a leg surgery or some, some kind of surgery, and you meet with your doctor on an outpatient basis and do your pre-surgical paperwork and your tests, and then you go in at a specified time, and then after you get done in the operating room or the procedural area, then you go to your nursing unit where you're going to be for X amount of days, you know, like a knee surgery or a hip surgery, something like that. Um, those are the most, you know, two most common ways to really be admitted to the hospital. And one you can imagine is this sudden, sometimes very, very scary event. And then another one is where you have time to kind of prepare and get your mind around things and think of, and bring a bag to the hospital. Have this stuff you know you're, you're, you're going to need. Think of questions beforehand. Get them answered beforehand. You know, they're two very um, kind of different scenarios. Okay, so we should, approach, we, we should talk about them separately then because, uh, you know, I, well, I guess it doesn't really matter which is the most common, but let's start with the ER because that's a surprise. Mm-hmm. And, and, oh, you, yeah. and you may not even be 
first of all, which would make it a really different thing, you, if you in your own community, you could be traveling, you could be somewhere else, you can be in a, a, a different state or a different city, you don't even know what hospital to go to, I mean, mm-hmm. let alone being in your own community and having an emergency. I mean, that's you know, so... Um, yeah, that's yeah. a big, that's a big, you know, big scary event, especially if you go into the hospital for maybe you, you know, had a stroke or something and you're, you're traveling and you were alone and they don't know who, you know, who's with you and what your name is and that those scenarios really do happen. And it's really, really important to, you know, have maybe, you know, the new iPhones have really great, that eye health emergency thing on them, which are awesome, or people have medical information in their wallets, which is really, really, really helpful. Um, if something like some emergent event occurs and you maybe you can't speak or communicate, do let's say you're admitted to an emergency room. It's, you're talking about that eye health app. I was just talking to somebody about that who was very young and didn't even know about it actually. So, are doctors and nurses or the ER people are they trained to look automatically besides looking in your wallet to see what information, but to look on your cell phone if they can get into your cell phone? That's another issue, and find out um, like what you have on your health on the eye app. Well, so I work in the. Um up in the critical care unit. So the emergency department kind of gets them like situated and sends them up to me. So I actually haven't, haven't received training on that. And I don't, that's something that it takes a little while for that technology to become apparent and then for us to develop training and then to further implement that training, you know, consistently. But, you know, what happens is like, you know, my, I'm with my friend and my friend was found down and, oh, maybe I'm going to look in their phone to see where their mom's phone number or their, you know, and I believe, and I'm trying to check on my phone, that you can actually, um, you know, how you can do an emergency call on a phone when um, it's locked so you don't actually have to know the number. I believe you can access the health information that way as well. In the same way, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, okay, so it's very oh, it's amazing. It's really amazing, and that stuff can make a big difference if you're um, if it's a really major emergency. So, what else can we do? Let's say we don't have that, and we don't have that. We just you know we don't have the uh, the app. We don't have that kind of information. We are in the emergency room. What can we do to prepare? Well, I mean, what can we do? Let's say to, first of all, read your book, but like to prepare uh, before that actually happens. I mean, because yeah. many of us will find ourselves in that position in the ER. What do we do? So it's really important that you're aware just kind of of your own um, health issues, kind of, that you're able to verbalize them. Like, you know, I take a water pill. Well, what, what pill is that and how many milligrams do you take and did you take it today? We, it's really important for us to know medications um, and to know kind of what's going on with you. Do you have diabetes? Do you have heart failure? Do you have, you know, like various issues that could affect things. So it's really helpful if a, if a person is very knowledgeable about what's going on with their own health. And if you're, you know, kind of a caregiver or like your spouse, you know those kind of things off the top of your head as well. That's really, really helpful to be informed. And also, um, when you're going into the emergency department and you're having all this stuff happen, it's it's really important to make sure you're asking good questions. Okay, so so what do you think's going on? What test are we doing? Why are we doing that test? You know, like that kind of stuff is really important to ask those kinds of questions, um, specific questions, not like, okay, I'll just do whatever you guys tell me. It's really important to be informed during every step of that process. 
Well, what, and what about communication? Because there are some patients who, whatever the doctor or the nurse says, I'm going to do, who am I to question? There's that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Then there's the patient who is like, I know, I was asking, and I'm probably one of those, I feel like too many questions, and they, they maybe are like, you know, we really, we know what we're doing. Don't question us. Don't challenge us because you do get that sometimes as well. So you have to deal, I mean, those are kind of the two opposite kinds of responses, but many people are probably somewhere in between. So how do we, and you're trying to open up, this is another question for you, is that, you know, you're not feeling well. You're, you know, you are really, you're vulnerable. So you trying to do this in the same you know, when you're so vulnerable and in the ER room is also a difficult thing to do. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And that's why it's so important to have that one or one or two other people. Maybe it's your family. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's your spouse or somebody. But somebody that is your, like, I can always count on you. If I have, to, if something horrific happened, I could call you and you would leave work and you would come meet me and you would be able to advocate for me when I'm not feeling well. You know, it's really important to not only, you know, that person knows your, what's going on with your health. That person has an idea of maybe the medications or if they don't know what meds you are on, they know where to access a list of medications. And they have an idea not only of that, but, you know, let's say you had this really, really bad thing happen and you're completely, you know, on a breathing tube and that kind of stuff and major life decisions had to be made and they understood and knew what your wishes would be. It's really, it's, that's something, especially working in the critical care environment, it's really important to have those conversations when you're experiencing normal life on a normal day with no stressors around you and you're having this open dialogue with others so they're all, everybody's on the same page about what you would want so that when that, if, hopefully it doesn't, but if that situation came across, that everybody would know what to do. And so you would in have other words, that when you're at person. home, you really should take your list. And I know you have a list of at least seven things that are really important to do. Let's say the list of medications. Probably you should just have that at home, generally speaking, right? Write them down. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, and know and have some sense of you say know your code. Like, what would you want somebody to do? Let's say if you are brain dead, or you you know, do you want the resuscitation? Those kinds, those are the things nobody wants to talk about. But um, at least open up the conversation, I guess, right? Oh yeah, I mean, I've been you know, to talk, the meds absolutely is so important because I'll have people come in and just drop a bunch of pills, you know, pill bottles here. It's like, wait, you know, are you taking, are they taking all these? I don't know. These look like they've had some gone. Maybe they're taking them. So I'm playing investigator, calling the pharmacy, seeing the last time they got filled, you know, like that kind of stuff. But if you have them even just written down somewhere where someone can grab it, we can make a copy of it and know very specifically what you've had recently, that's really helpful. But, you know, speaking of the code, it's so, so, I can't even tell you how important it is because, you know, seeing patients and people go through this, you know, very traumatic life events, I've seen Two extremes. I've seen the family that has talked about it and this loved one that is, you know, the family has to make the decision. Do we want to put them, give them a feeding tube and a breathing tube and let them live in a nursing home the rest of their life or should we let them pass naturally? And that's the scenario that's put in front of them. And one family has talked with talked over and over and they are so sure that this is what the family member would want. And they are they are so sure about it and confident in it that none of them are are in like distress over not being sure. And then you have the other family who 
has never talked about death, has never talked about this scenario at all, and no one knows what to do, and everybody's disagreeing. And you can imagine not only are you dealing with a potential death and life-altering situation, but now you're like you know, at odds with other people, you're not sure of what to do. And just imagine how different those grieving processes are. And it's, it, it's really important to have those conversations before you're in that in situation and when you're still able to express yourself. I know the conversation is so, so hard. And I know that talking about death can bring up like death anxiety and, and make us really like, that can be tough for us, but it's, it's a lot less stressful than having to do that in the middle of your worst nightmare. So as the nurse, as the critical care nurse, what do you do in, what do you do in that situation where there's somewhat, I guess, it's sort of chaotic in terms of what families think the patient wants or even if they think the patient wants one thing and, and, and but the family members want something different or there's you know, several different uh, takes on what should be done. What do you actually do in a hospital? How do you make, what do you do? I mean, do you automatically? Yeah, yeah. It's a it's a really tough situation. So what we do is we kind of, as an interdisciplinary team, we sit down with um, the healthcare power of attorney. So if the patient has someone established as their healthcare power of attorney, that person is going to make the decision. And if they don't, then it falls to their next of kin. And then any other important, you know members of the family, we'll sit down and we'll make sure, and we'll do this multiple times, we'll sit down with our social worker that we love so much. <laughs> our, uh, uh, we use palliative care a lot um, and, all the, and those palliative care physicians and their support staff and the nurse and then any doctors. And typically it's like a, in my world in neurocritical care, it's usually a neurosurgeon or a neurologist or a neurointensivist and then, uh, you know, a critical care doctor. And we sit down and we make sure that the family fully understands everything, the scenario, what could potentially happen. This is the disease process. And then we pull, and then the doctors kind of answer all the questions. And then the palliative care, you know, social work, case management kind of, and the nurse can kind of sit there and really try to work through stuff. Um, but truly, at the end of the day, though, it, it falls to the healthcare power attorney and the next, or the next of kin if that has not been established. So, you know, if, even if people are all these people are disagreeing, if it falls to one person, that person ultimately, ultimately makes the decision. But that can be a good thing and a bad thing, right? We have a decision made. We know what's going to happen. But if that person isn't, they think they're making the right decision then, they think, but maybe they're not sure. That's a decision they have to carry for, with them the rest of their life. You know? well, I think that's that an important point, that, obviously, that you're making because it, it's a critical big decision. But I think one of the things, and you mentioned it in the book, that I think that as, as the public or as the patient or the family, sometimes doctors and nurses uh, and you, you're, uh, you're pretty clear about this, like what does actually resuscitation mean? Because there is this kind of, well, of course we're going to do everything we can, but everything we can may be horrendous and, and really destructive. Like what does it really mean to have a feeding tube? What does it really mean to, to uh, you know, do CPR? You know, we see it on television kind of stuff. Well, they do it, the patient gets revived, and everything works out great in the end. And that's not really true. It's, it's a true, I mean, it's a grim process, and it, it doesn't necessarily help to revive a patient, let's say the two things I described, 
but it really puts them in, in you know, it, I don't know what the word is, but, I mean, it, they, it really uh, kind of dire circumstances. And, and that's not, I don't know if people really get that. That's one thing, too, like, you know, and I think, like, CPR, you see it on TV, but they don't do real CPR on TV because you would really traumatize and injure the actor if you did real CPR. I mean, real CPR, not to get grim, but involves breaking ribs. And if you are, you know, because that's how hard you have to push because CPR is us manually pumping your heart because your heart is not pumping effectively so or it's not pumping at all. So we're doing it for you. And that involves, you know, pushing down very, very hard and putting in a breathing tube. And those things can be very traumatic. And if you're someone that maybe has a terminal, you know, diagnosis where that, where even if we resuscitated you, it's not going to fix this underlying maybe cancer diagnosis or something else going on. Is us resuscitating you going to, you know, help with your grieving and and dying process, or is it really going to hinder it and put you through more suffering than is necessary? So that's why it's really important that I feel like people need to be educated about what that looks like because so many people equate it with what's on TV. And with what's on TV is absolutely nothing what it's like in real life. Yeah, I I think that's a really uh, critical, important point um, that, you know, needs to be worked on both in the family and the patient and, and also the, the, the staff, the hospital staff. Let's go switching now. Let's say it's not an emergency situation, planned surgery. Uh, you know when you're going to go in. You know what your diagnosis is. You know, hopefully you've sat down and you've talked to your physician. You have an idea of what's going to happen. But still, you get in the hospital and things don't always work out the way you want, the way you expected, let's say, and you're not getting the care you want. And um, so what do we do? Or you're, you, you feel like you're not able to communicate with, with the nursing staff or the physicians because, you, I mean, you have a lot of information about that in your book. Yeah, yeah, and that, you know, that can happen. I, I feel like I've talked to all my, you know, friends and family, and pretty much everyone has spent some time in the hospital, and they all say, if they would have just told me this, it would have been a lot easier, you know. So I tried to cover all of that kind of instances in the book, but there are times where, hey, you know what, that physical therapist was a little too rough with me, or that nurse was really kind of rude to me, and I didn't appreciate that, and I was just trying to ask a question, or or maybe this nurse or this assistant or somebody, you know, made did something that I wasn't okay with, what do I do? So what you can do is you can talk to your nurse if that's not the person you're you know, concerned about and say, hey, you know, this issue happened and the nurse can talk to their manager or talk to whomever to get, you know, whatever process started. So if it's like, hey, that person's manager or that person needs to be spoken to to not, you know, to do that or maybe they need to clarify something better because we don't want another patient experiencing that as well. And we would much, much rather deal with that while you're still in the hospital, remedy that so that you're not going home upset about that and then it's, it, and it's harder for us to address the situation as a week's past, if that makes sense. Yeah, so talk to your nurse directly, but if your nurse is the one you're concerned about, ask your nurse if you can speak with their manager because every nursing unit has a nurse manager and they're kind of like the gatekeeper kind of to the administrative world. You know, the nurses are taking care of patients, but there's this whole administrative side of the hospital and the nurse manager is kind of like our gateway there. So if we, you know, you can always ask to speak to the nurse manager and they're typically there 
business hours, 8 to 5, Monday through Friday on most units, and then there's always someone on call, so if there's an emergency, they can address it. Um, but if it's an 8 to 5 kind of time, you can say, hey, can I, can I just talk to the manager real quick? You don't need to tell them why. And then you can sit down and, and they can come to your room and then you can and work through whatever scenario happened. So the nurse manager is different than the head nurse, let's say, on the floor. Absolutely. So there's a charge nurse typically, and every kind of hospital does this a little different. But so you, let's say you've got a nursing unit of 20 nurses, and then you have one charge nurse or lead nurse that's kind of in charge of patient flow. These patients are going out. These are coming in. This one's going to go into this room. But, it, but over them is a nurse manager that's in charge of every nurse that's employed on that unit, whether they're there that day or not. So there's kind of, there's more than, you know, the charge nurse, there's someone administratively and they work on stuff like budgets and hiring and firing and and work with, you know, the director and the physicians and that kind of stuff. I, I wish I had spoken to you a little bit sooner. I was this was a, a, a couple months ago. I was in the hospital with a close relative, and uh, we felt like there was uh, we weren't getting answers to our questions, and the, it was the nurse. Uh, I'm called the charge nurse, uh, who I was talking to because I'm pretty bold, and and I said, you know, I was really concerned, and we need to speak to the doctor because there are, we have a lot of questions, and she, I said, and not sure what we're doing, and she looked at me and she said, we know what we're, this happens, we, we take it, we do this all the time. And I said, but we don't do this all the yeah, time. Yeah, we don't do this all the time. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I was able to have access to the doctor and it worked out fine. But, you know, like you're saying, um, I mean, it's really important to be able to, if, if that person is the issue and not being able to communicate, to go to this, as you're describing, the nurse manager. Um, yeah. Yeah, so, and, and, and the important thing that I think that nurse probably missed is, you know, we do this all the time, and we kind of expect people to just trust us the second they walk in the door, but that's not how it works, and that's not how life works. We have to establish a rapport and a trusting relationship with people. You know, it's not like, okay, I'm just going to do whatever I want. Like, no, you know, I need to, we both need to be on board. It's not me doing things to the patient. It's us you know, working together to ensure the best outcome. So, hey, you know, this is going to be the most appropriate thing according to this doctor and this doctor. And you know what? This is what practically that test or procedure will look like. This is roughly when we will do it, you know, blah, blah, blah. And if and if we're having an issue of, you know, trust, we need to, we as the staff need, need to invest more time into cultivating that trusting relationship, developing rapport, and educating more. You know, I think that's really, really important, and it's not too much for the patient and their family to ask for that. Yeah, very well said. We have reached the end of our half hour, and I have to say it went by really fast. And well, that I know, went by really fast. <laughs> yeah, it did go by really fast. So let's just, we got... 30 seconds left, uh, I, I want to mention the book again and a website that we can go to, but the uh, title of the book is Admit One, What You Must Know When Going to the Hospital, and there's a lot more in the book that you need to know. So um, we've been talking to Katie Kleber, and uh, just give us the website, and then we'll have to say goodbye. Um, so you can get the book on Amazon, but then you can also get it um, at nursebooks.com. Org, and that's the American Nurses Association's publication division. So those are the two best places to really, really get the publication. Great. Well, it's been a real treat, a pleasure talking to you today. And um, 
We are going to say goodbye. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you have been listening to the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Uh, Have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you have enjoyed today's episode of the Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. 